0: Tonight on the readout.
1: Admitted that we want the trial. and the judge end this trial Thank you.
0: That was Donald Trump moments after he stormed out of court today. The little dramatic flourishes are really all he has left as witnesses begin to flip on him and judges start to penalize his thuggish behavior. Also tonight, meet your new House Speaker, America. His name is Mike Johnson. He's a leading election denier, an extreme right-wing religious ideologue, and most importantly, he loves him some Trump. Plus, one of the heroes of January 6th joins me tonight. Officer Harry Dunn is here to talk about why accountability is so critically important for those responsible for one of the darkest moments in American history. But we begin tonight with one of the biggest concerns for any mob boss, the threat of members of the gang flipping on him, once caught by law enforcement. Donald Trump, who has long emulated mob tactics and at one time even characterized the New York crime families as very nice people, has said he knows all about flippers.
2: This whole thing about uh, flipping, they call it. I know all about flipping. For 30, 40 years, I've been watching flippers Everything's wonderful, and then they get 10 years in jail and they, they flip on whoever the next highest mm-hmm. one is, or as high as you can go. Mm-hmm. It, it almost ought to be outlawed. It's not fair. I've had many friends involved in this stuff. It's called flipping, and it almost ought to be illegal.
0: At the time, Trump was referring to the deal his former lawyer and fixer Michael Cohen cut with federal prosecutors regarding Trump's role in arranging hush money payments to women, including porn actress Stormy Daniels, ahead of the 2016 presidential election. Fast forward to today in New York, where Trump and Cohen faced off for a second contentious day in Trump's civil fraud trial, which included Trump storming out of the courtroom after being admonished by the judge. This week, by the way, is the first time the two have been face-to-face since Cohen made that deal.
3: When you looked at him in the eye, Michael, what did you see?
4: I saw a defeated man. I saw somebody that knows that it's the end of the Trump Organization, already found guilty of fraud. The license will ultimately be taken. And now this entire case is merely about how much. This is merely about how much disgorgement the attorney general will be seeking.
0: But Cohen may not be Trump's biggest concern right now. Last night, we told you about reporting from ABC News that Trump's former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, may also have flipped on his former boss. Meadows was reportedly granted immunity by special counsel Jack Smith in the federal election interference case to testify under oath. NBC News has not confirmed that reporting, but if true, it would be catastrophic for Trump given how involved Meadows was in the conversations and efforts to overturn the 2020 election results and what he might know about, I don't know, Trump's mishandling of classified documents. Meadows' attorneys have called the ABC reporting, quote, largely inaccurate. Still, according to Rolling Stone, over the summer, Trump's allies and close advisors believed Meadows was cooperating with the special counsel, referring to him in mob lingo as a rat. Trump lashed out at this potentially damning deal last night, again referring to special counsel Jack Smith as a, quote, deranged prosecutor and claiming that any potential witnesses like Meadows who made such a deal are weaklings and cowards. Fortunately for Trump, the recent gag order put in place by Judge Tanya Chutkin in the federal election interference case has been put on hold. Otherwise, those comments would be a clear violation. This comes as three of Trump's co-defendants in the Georgia election interference case took plea deals in the first week, bringing the total number to four. And it's believed that more co-defendants could follow suit. CNN is reporting that prosecutors in the case have discussed potential plea deals with at least six additional co-defendants, according to multiple sources. It is a concern that Trump's legal team has been preparing for, having spent the past months trying to figure out which of the 18 other co-defendants are likeliest to cut deals. Rolling Stone reports that as part of this effort, the former president's team has also been digging into troves of past communications and private documents related to some of these co-defendants, targeting those deemed likely to flip and cooperate with prosecutors. The purpose of the research, according to the sources, with knowledge of the matter, has been to unearth materials that Trump attorneys could use to undermine the credibility of these would-be witnesses. Joining me now is Suzanne Craig, investigative reporter for The New York Times, who was in the courtroom for Trump's fraud trial, Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion and a Trump biographer, and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor and host of the Justice Matters podcast. Suzanne, I do want to go to you first. Today was a bit dramatic. Uh, There was a $10,000 fine, uh, and there was also admonishment Uh, of Trump. Tell us about what happened.
5: Yeah, it it was pretty dramatic. It was quite a day and it, it it's been building for a little bit. Donald Trump has really zeroed in on both the judge, but but in this case, more his clerk. And this is somebody who sits at the bench with Donald Trump and that the judge confers with. And we've seen in the last you know a few weeks ago, there was an incident where Donald Trump posted a picture of this clerk with Chuck Schumer, and I think called her Chuck Schumer's girlfriend. This really angered the judge and, and Trump was hit by the judge for that. He was criticized for it and he was told to take the picture down. He did, but it surfaced that there was still a version of it on the internet and he got fined $5,000. And so then we walk into court this morning, and right away it was interesting, and, and, and you can just tell that this clerk is on their mind. Alina Habba, Donald Trump's lawyer, gets up first thing in the morning. She says, You know, I, I have a sensitive or a personal matter that I'd like to, to address the court with. And then she starts by saying, I used to be a law clerk, and the judge that I worked for was really strict. And she then asked if, if people at the bench could not roll their eyes when she's talking. And so the judge right away didn't smile, and there was no response, but he said, Yes, that's fine. But it was right away you could see that the, the, the clerk was under their skin. And then, and then Donald Trump, halfway through the day, went outside and made a comment about the judge and how partisan the judge is, which is fair within the gag order that he can criticize the judge. But then he said, And then the person sitting, you know, next to the judge is also very partisan. And the judge saw the comments. that were posted immediately by the wire services and went went nuts. And the implication, Donald Trump didn't say it, but he was referring to the law clerk, and this devolved into uh, who was he referring to. And the judge came into court, and he was very concerned. He made open remarks saying he didn't want to get anybody killed. He was not concerned about it. And then all of a sudden... He calls Donald Trump up on the stand. This was not supposed to... Donald Trump is going to be one of the last witnesses, but this was not for him to be a witness in the case. This was to specifically speak to this issue. The judge very quickly, he was up and gone almost before anybody could even, you know, turn around. But the judge asked him who he was referring to, came out of, you know his argument it was Michael Cohen it wasn't the clerk Um, the judge said he said exactly he says as a trier of fact I find this witness not credible and Donald Trump was fined ten thousand dollars and then Donald Trump it it, not long after stormed out of court I don't think it was expected the secret service went scurrying after him it was quite a scene he ended up coming back but um, but not happy no one was happy the judge was furious at him.
0: And that is him uh, storming out of the courtroom. We have that video that was up right now. Yeah. Tim, why can't this man control himself?
6: <laughs> uh, be, because he's a seven-year-old grown old, Joy. Like that's that is not a mystery at all. He's you know, and he's cornered. I, I think everything we're seeing in this courtroom right now is performative. None of it is strategic legally. He he wants to present everything that's happening in the court as targeted against him as a sham and lacking in merit so he can convince his supporters and the public that he is somehow the victim here. But it is completely running against what they should be doing to have a sympathetic judge, who at the end of the day is going to be the one who imposes the penalty on the Trump organization and Donald Trump. He will determine the size of the fine. He will determine uh, the extent to which the Trump organization and the Trump children can continue doing business in the state of New York. Uh, so so I just think it's day after day we're getting continued evidence of, of him as someone who feels cornered. And, and I think, you know, the video at the top of the show where he goes on and on about how miserable he feels that people are flipping against him. It's worth remembering, you know, over 40 years ago when Donald Trump first went into business in Atlantic City, he voluntarily approached the FBI and told them he'd be willing to flip on other casino owners who may have mob ties. In part because Donald Trump, when he first entered Atlantic City, entered in partnerships with mobbed up uh, partners on his own properties. But it's also because he has no problem flipping himself when it serves him well. Uh, He's allied with Rudy Giuliani, who made a career as a U.S. attorney by getting mobsters to flip on one another. He's been around this his whole life. What he's upset now is that all of these wheels are turning against him. And he doesn't have the maturity, the temperament to, to handle it in a different way.
0: And Glenn, I mean, the thing is, is that it seems to me that cooperation with the government is like a snowball. People see other people cooperate and they go, oh, hold on, let me cooperate. And the deals don't get better. So people, you know, it's sort of a race to get to the front of the line to get the best deal. The accumulation of potential flippers, including maybe Mark Meadows, we do not know if Mark Meadows has actually done that or is is he just cooperating. If you're, let's say, Jack Smith and you're watching Fonnie Willis rack up these um, flippers, what does that do to and for your case, your two cases?
3: Yeah, well, it's interesting because the more co-defendants down in Georgia who plead guilty in connection with District Attorney Willis's RICO case, um, the more that only strengthens uh, Jack Smith's prosecution because, you know, the RICO crimes down in Georgia are basically a smaller subset of what Donald Trump and his criminal associates and his co-conspirators attempted to do in D.C., overturn the results of a presidential election. So with each guilty plea, particularly guilty pleas with cooperation down in Georgia, that is another opportunity for Jack Smith to hopefully import That um, that good development, it it would surprise me if some of the people who are pleading guilty down in Georgia, like Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro and Jenna Ellis, have not at least communicated through their counsel with Jack Smith's team, because if they are not envisioning resolving what I believe are the coming charges in D.C., then they're kind of foolish to just completely expose themselves to criminal liability in D.C., by pleading guilty down in Georgia. So the flipping will continue. This has been a textbook RICO prosecution thus far by Fawny Willis. You can see she's, she's knocking over certain dominoes because they're crashing in to other dominoes. It looks like guys like John Eastman might be the next to fall once Kenneth Chesbro, the other architect of the fake elector scheme, fell. So she's executing the RICO playbook brilliantly. And Joy, it's all going to inure to the benefit of Jack Smith's prosecution in D.C. Uh,
0: and, Susan, to go, to go back, because you've got that case happening, but then in New York, it's sort of a fait accompli that Trump has already essentially lost the case. Um, and and yet it doesn't seem to be changing what he's doing in court and his strategy. You know, to Michael Cohen's point, the only question left is how much he has to pay. Is there any reporting on whether his lawyers are having some discomfort with his strategy, which seems to me to undermine the end result?
5: Well, it's interesting because I think this a lot of this is definitely performative, but there is another audience here, and it's the appellate court. They're mm. going to appeal this, and I think they're laying the groundwork for that on a number of fronts. So I think that that is an important audience because at a certain point he wants to run out the clock. He wants to drag this as long as he can through, through the upper courts. The other thing that I found very interesting today about Mike, Michael Cohen was, there was a lot, a lot of testimony from Michael Cohen, but what was interesting about it is there were prosecutors there from the district attorney's office and they were there to watch, Just I I, I think they were. I would imagine that they were there, but they were there watching because they're trying to see what sort of witness Michael Cohen is, because he is going to be a key witness in the Stormy Daniels case. Mm. So there's a lot of eyes on this for different reasons. And I think that those two things aren't as talked about, but are very important in this.
0: And uh, Tim, if Meadows, if Mark Meadows, who was the closest person to Donald Trump in the White House, actually begins to cooperate with Jack Smith, you know Donald Trump. What does that do to his corpus mentis?
6: It's just another it's another sort of uh, block in the Jenga block of Donald Trump's psyche, each little log getting pulled out and it gets more tipsy. And, and I think he becomes more unstable. Uh, I, I'm you know, it's not clear to me the terms under which Mark Meadows actually is testifying. It sounds like, um, uh, you know, it, it's not necess- it's not necessarily clear that he has flipped. He, right. uh, he may be, p- be cooperating with the investigation and, yeah. and have protected testimony, but may not have flipped. But, you know, with each one of these, as Glenn pointed out, every time they move up the food chain and everyone gets picked off and you get closer and closer to the head of the snake, as they say in law enforcement, uh, it, it, it increases the pressure on him. And he's just not simply built, I think, as a person and as a strategist to withstand this kind of pressure.
0: Uh, Suzanne Craig, Tim O'Brien, Glenn Kirshner, thank you all very much. Up next on The Readout, meet the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, a leading election denier who opposes abortion and LGBTQ rights. And most importantly, he meets the MAGA litmus test. He is an unabashed admirer of Donald
1: Trump. Stay with us. The gentlewoman from New York said it right. This has been about one thing. This has been about who can appease Donald Trump. House Republicans have put their names behind someone who has been called the most important architect of the electoral college objections. He's spearheaded. That's fair, that's fair. We know how you feel. Yeah,
0: you've made that clear. House Republicans finally found a more palatable election denier to install as House Speaker. MAGA Mike Johnson of Louisiana, the fourth choice for the job, was elected today, 22 days after Kevin McCarthy was deposed. So first things first, who in the hail bogs is Congressman Mike Johnson? Well, as Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar noted last year, the New York Times called him the most important architect of the Electoral College objections. On January 6th, Johnson was instrumental in rallying 138 of his colleagues to join him in voting to overturn the 2020 election. He was a key architect of the independent state legislature theory and led the effort to get Republicans to sign on to a Texas lawsuit to throw out electoral votes in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, and Wisconsin. Johnson emailed every Republican to solicit signatures and told them that Donald Trump will be anxiously awaiting the final list to review. He is as MAGA as Jim Jordan, just a little less screaming and bullying. They are good friends, by the way, both served on the Judiciary Committee, and they have virtually identical voting records on everything from refusing to certify the 2020 election to rejecting 20th century voting rights, ensuring abortion access, reauthorizing the Violent Against Women Act, bipartisan gun legislation, recognizing same-sex marriage, no to all of those things. And that's before they both rejected aid to Ukraine and voted against averting a government shutdown. In addition to voting against federal recognition of same sex marriage, he's written in support of criminalizing same sex relationships. Oh, and last year, Johnson proposed a nationwide version of the Ron DeSantis Don't Say Gay Law. Despite losing election after election after election over abortion rights, Republicans have installed an anti abortion zealot to lead the House. Here is Johnson at a hearing on abortion care access
3: last year. So how about if a child is halfway out of the birth canal, is an abortion permissible then?
0: Can you repeat your question? If a
3: child is halfway delivered out of the birth canal, is it permissible to have an abortion? Would you support the right for an abortion then?
0: I can't even fathom that
3: ever. I'm not asking time. you if you can fathom it. If it occurred, would you support that abortion or not? That's I unrestricted can't abortion, right? a
0: question that I can't imagine. I, just like you probably can't imagine what you would do if your daughter was raped. That, like, Because that's not a thing. That's not a thing that happens. So now, Johnson, that guy, will be the first true MAGA speaker. Full stop. His elevation is an acknowledgement that Republicans have officially passed the torch from what's left of the normie Republican Party to what used to be the fringe. Recall that they passed uh, on... They passed on upside-down Zoom guy, Tom Emmer—there he is yesterday upside-down—because Emmer wasn't sufficiently insurrection-curious and voted to uphold the election, while also supporting the legal recognition of same-sex marriage, something that got him screamed at by a fellow Republican member. Obviously, Kevin McCarthy's fake MAGA act wasn't good enough either for Republicans. So now, with Speaker Mike Johnson, they've got the real pure thing—a coup organizer with the full backing of Donald Trump himself. Joining me now is Denver Riggleman, who served as a Republican congressman and now is an independent. Um, thank you for being here, Denver. Um, let me play for you the reaction of your former party um, when ABC's Rachel Scott asked about Johnson's uh, role in, in the uh, denial of the election in 2020. Johnson, you
3: helped lead the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. results. Oh, <laughs> for
0: So so that's it then. Right. Now to be a Republican means you must be an election denier or get out of the party.
1: You know, I'm not an election denier, Joy. So (laughs) it's 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 unbelievable to me that they would just sort of scoff at that question when it's a valid question. Number one, number two, Joy, I think you're probably asking, well, how did he get How did he get to this point? You know, in the Air Force, we call somebody like Mike a clutter candidate. You know, he comes out of the clutter and then he pops up on the radar so you can see him. But he is a very loyal soldier to the far right movement. And the fact that they would scoff at that question like that, it's like you're going to a keg party. You talk about, hey, there's no beer in that keg. It's actually Kool-Aid. And they're like, oh, shut up. That's not what (laughs) happened. You know, it's it's such a it's such a ridiculous answer and ridiculous laughter. It's so reprehensible uh, that they would laugh at something like that, knowing that Mike Johnson, you know, I, I know a lot about January 6th. I know about the November 7th letter, I know that he's in the text messages between Mike Lee and uh, Mark Meadows. So listen, he is a very savvy guy. If you meet him in person, he's gracious, he's respectful, but you know the thing that I have against Mike Johnson is that he's a virulent election denier and I think that's something that's just a hill too far for anybody that's sane to climb.
0: Right. I mean, Fox News paid, what, $787 million um, because of the lies about Dominion. He was touting the, those very lies uh, in 2020 on a radio interview. So he apparently believes all of it, the Hugo Chavez stuff and everything. Um, the other thing I think that is sort of sad is the collapse of the people like Ken Buck of Colorado, who initially said, I can't vote for somebody who doesn't accept the validity of the election. Here he is changing his whole tune. Do we have it? Oh, he reversed it. OK, I, I, don't, I don't think we have it to play. But he essentially said, "Well, oh, people make mistakes. So now he's gone from saying I cannot vote for Jim Jordan because he's an election denier to saying, you know, fine. What do you make of the fact that none of the so-called normies stood up to this guy?
7: Because
1: they're not normies. If, if, if yeah. you say that you're actually somebody who cares about the Constitution and you're somebody who wants to keep your word, you have to be incredibly stable incredibly direct in your answers, but you also have to be, you know, an individual who doesn't change their mind on a whim or you're not a political windsock. And I I think what Ken Buck did is indicative of what's happening in Congress today. You really do. You do roll out of fear. And you know that Trump is standing right over there behind your shoulder and he can actually get at you at any point. Mike Johnson is the Trump candidate for Speaker of the House and Ken Buck got in line. And I think that should bother just about anybody out there who's voting for these individuals. It's just very hard to trust anybody's word when, uh, you know, anything will get them to change, you know, and then that they can have an excuse for it right off the top, right off the tip of their tongue.
0: Uh, let me play what Matt Gates had to say about all of this.
1: That's- MAGA is ascendant. And if, if you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement, And where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, uh, then then you're not paying attention. I mean, a
0: broken clock is right once a day, right? And he's right. I mean, there there is no more Republican Party. There's just that guy and the people with him. So how does that work in with elections coming up? Because MAGA is not popular. They keep losing when they put up people like this. To be elected um, by beyond their little red, red districts, this guy is virulently anti-abortion. He's virulently anti-LGBTQ. There are Republicans who won in districts where Obama won. I mean, I'm sorry, where Biden won. Isn't this, aren't they setting themselves up to just lose the
1: House? I think I think it could be a 20 or 30 seat swing. But when you're looking at the Republican electorate, what is it, Joyce? Still 70 percent of the American electorate believe the election was stolen. I have to say, usually listen to Matt Gaetz is like listening to a wet fart. I mean, nobody really wants to listen to him or, or be around him. But I'm going to tell you right now that uh, he's actually right about Maga Mike Johnson. And the fact is. I swear <laughs> to God, the fact is, is that uh, Matt Gaetz might be the most pop, pop, powerful person in Congress right now. Um, look what he did. He did it. And that's the thing that people need to recognize. Matt Gaetz changed the Speaker of the House to somebody much further to the right of McCarthy. It's an amazing feat. So just an incredible thing.
0: Indeed. And part of the job is fundraising. I'm not sure he's too good at that, but I don't know what he's going to do, but lots of performative stuff. But you know what? I think this is the first time the term wet fart was used. Perhaps on MSNBC. So congratulations, Denver Riegelman. You delivered. Appreciate you coming up next. Thank you. Thank you. Harry Dunn joins me to discuss the chaos on Capitol Hill and his new book, which recounts his work as a Capitol police officer and details that traumatic day on January 6th, 2021. Stay right there. With all that is going on in the world, the January 6th insurrection feels like a lifetime ago. But to those who were there, to those who witnessed it, the trauma is always present. It was one of the darkest days in modern American history with thousands of Trump supporters laying siege to the Capitol and assaulting law enforcement officers. For Officer Harry Dunn, the experience was a painful gut punch.
4: Until then, I had never seen anyone Physically assault Capitol Police or MPD, let alone witness mass assaults being perpetrated on law enforcement officers. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, You hear that, guys? This n- voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, Boo! No one had ever, ever called me a n- while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer.
0: That was a direct result of Donald Trump and the Republican Party rejecting the results of the 2020 election. Today, the newly elected Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, embodies that ethos. Johnson was the most important architect of the Electoral College objections and helped corral Republican votes against certifying the elections in multiple swing states, not his own. In the past three weeks, we've only seen two Speaker candidates— who did not object to the 2020 election. And that's because in today's Republican Party, election denialism is a badge of honor and not a marked mark of shame. In fact, it is now a requirement and a central tenet of republicanism. Their denialism is also a daily insult to people like Officer Dunn. In his new book, Standing My Ground, A Capitol Hill Police, A Capitol Hill Officers Fight for Accountability and Good Trouble After January 6th, he writes... I speak out, not because I want something for me, but because I want accountability. I want the people responsible for that day, including Trump and anybody else who conspired to breach the Capitol and try to halt our democracy to pay a price, just like we paid a price. And joining me now is Officer Harry Dunn, author of the aforementioned newly published book, Standing My Ground. And I have uh, a copy here. We're going to hold it up because uh, everyone needs to read this because— I think it has gotten so far away that people don't remember it. I want to get into some of what you write about about that day. But I do want to ask you to react to the fact that the Republican caucus has now elected one of the top election deniers to be their speaker.
4: Yeah. um, Thanks. Always good to be with you. One thing I've got to point out, though, the we that I talk about in that book. I don't want people to think that that's just necessarily the Capitol Police mm-hmm. officers. We, meaning us, American citizens. I write this book as an American citizen, and that's where my viewpoint is coming from. I care about this country. I care about, you know, the way it functions. I want it to work well for all of us. So that's the we that I talk about. <clears throat> as far as the new speaker, um, I I don't really have an opinion about it. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons why I did write the book is to give a factual um representation account of what happened that day. I want the voters to be educated. Um, the voters are the people who hold the representatives accountable, not me. My job is to protect those members that the, the American people sent. So while I can have an opinion, I want their opinion um, to be an educated one and the, to be reflected at the ballot box because those American people are the people that hold the elected officials accountable.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I will note that he did not deny his own election. He, he <laughs> validated that particular election. He thought that was valid. Um, you describe in your book, getting on a video call with your daughter, yeah. um, after the insurrection and t- talk about that a little bit.
4: You know, um, we had a moment there was a little, I'll uh, call it a law inactivity, activity. And, um, was talking with a group of other officers and I said, Hey y'all, um, call, text your loved ones. I'm sure everybody's worried about us. Send them a message. I'm okay. And, um, I went to go grab my phone. I realized I didn't have it with me. So when I back retraced my steps, I remember where it was. I ran out to grab it and I was emotional. I was crying, um, throughout the day and uh, I wanted to get myself together, uh, picked up my phone and she, my daughter was uh, video calling me at That moment, as soon as I picked up my phone. So I was like, let me get myself together. I wiped my eyes. And the grime, the pepper spray remnants were on my coat. And I wiped the pepper spray in my eyes. And uh, it it smeared it. And it was just so painful. And I didn't want to scare her. So I'm like holding it together. My dad voice, hi, baby. And i got my eyes open. She's going on telling me about her day. And on the inside, I'm like, all right, I got to go. This is killing me. So I was like, just tell your mother I'm okay. And I got off the phone. I just let out a scream or a yell. Just tried to get my eyes together. Yeah. It was a, even in the middle of an insurrection, you're not too busy to be a dad, I guess. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) I mean, some of the experiences you describe in the book I mean, Mm. these insurrectionists ripping up a a picture of John Lewis, um, your testimony about having the N word hurled at you, something that, first of all, you you know, you're not a little dude. (laughs) So they took a lot of chances, you know, messing with you, but they didn't, they were bold enough to feel like they could call you the N word, rip up pictures of John Lewis. Just talk about, like, how did you, control yourself um we know that i've covered a lot of you know issues, issues with yeah. police and you know the question is how do you control your emotions I in, a, in that moment
4: so I, I one i work with a incredibly incredible group of men and women um and they show the absolute most professionalism indeed so it just speaks to the the caliber of the men and women that i work with um individually um just do what I think is right. I, I don't I don't really know how I was able to keep my composure. I guess, you know, when you, when all else fails and everything hits the wall, you rely on your training, and you rely on your instincts. And I, I guess I attribute the way I respond to the way I was raised, my temperament and all that stuff. While I was very furious and screaming and yelling at individuals. I wasn't officer friendly that day. Yeah. Um, but it was about making it home to my loved ones while maintaining um keeping the members of Congress and everybody inside that building
0: safe. Is it hard for you to do this job knowing that some of the people that you're protecting were a part of it, or at least agreed with what happened that day?
4: You know, I had to reshape my whole narrative. Um, I... I what are we doing? Like, What do I do? The public service element of it. I have to look at what did that seat represent, the seat of a member that a member of Congress, though I may disagree with. Mm-hmm. What does that seat represent? It represents the American people. It represents democracy. And no matter who occupies that seat, I have to realize that seat existed hundreds of years before that person existed. Mm-hmm. And by us continuing to do our job. It will exist hundreds of years after they no longer exist. So, you know, we may not enjoy or agree with the individual who occupies that seat at the moment, but future generations count on us to maintain it. Um, That's why defending democracy is so important. So it's difficult, but kind of like bigger picture kind of thinking.
0: You know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh Officer Harry Dunn, you are a hero, and all of the people who were with you on that day and taking those beatings are heroic. And I hope that you know that and that you take that in, because it is true. Thank you, my friend. Thank
4: you. Always
0: good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you. Author of Standing My Ground, Harry Dunn. We'll be right back. More than 6,500 people have been killed in Gaza, including 2,700 children, according to the health spokesman in Gaza. NBC's Ellison Barber takes us inside Al-Shifa Hospital, where doctors struggle to treat patients as Gaza's health system is crumbling. A warning to our viewers, the content you're about to see is graphic. If the walls of Gaza's Al-Shifa Hospital could talk, they'd tell a story of a perpetual hell, of children crying out in agony,
6: bloodied,
3: fighting for their lives after Israeli airstrikes.
7: 40% of all of the wounded are children. This is a nine-year-old boy with a huge blast uh,
2: defect in his back. This war is different in, in terms of the type of ordinance that's used. has a much bigger incendiary component
4: to it.
0: The walls of Al-Shifa Hospital cannot speak. But they carry the echoes of the most brutal, often unspeakable moments of war. If... The world listens. Today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that Israel is preparing for a ground invasion of Gaza, but he did not say when it will happen. More than 200 hostages are believed to be trapped in Gaza. Joining me now is Daniel Levy, president of the U.S. Middle East Project and former senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, and Hani Almadoun. Director of Philanthropy for United Nations Relief and Works Agency, USA. Thank you both for being here. Mr. Amadun, I do want to start with you um, to talk about, you know, what we just saw is horrific. It's very hard to watch, especially the children. Um, The UN has given some very grave uh, assessments of what's happening in Gaza. I know your family is there. You've written very movingly about the fears you have for your own family. Can you tell us, um, to the extent that you know— what is life like for your for, for, for your family, for people in Gaza right now?
7: Yeah, it's. Um, I want to say I'm glad to be in the show, but I really can't say the words anymore just because of the tragedies and losses we're dealing with at a personal level. I have not talked to my family in about uh, two days. Uh, this is the picture I received before the connections went away. I tried to call him today. No answer. I'm not sure what's going on. I keep my eyes in the news to see, you know, because wherever there is an airstrike, the news reports where it was. And I hold my hand on my heart to make sure, you know, I worry for everybody, obviously, but I know where my family is and I know they're not supposed to be in the safe zone. And it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to deal with. You've shown pictures of the kids. I've seen even more graphic pictures of Palestinian children. And the worst part, it doesn't seem to register. It seems, you know, we've been, where somehow we've been dehumanized. And that's just we're losing the innocence of the humanity as we look at Gaza right now.
0: And uh, how do you, when people are told to move south, where do they go?
7: Yeah, so actually the bomb's mostly been in the south too. So it's not like the north is the area that's only being bombarded. We've seen people in Khan Yunus. I know personally, I had Ahed al who received the phone call and I have a record of the phone call. They told him move out south. He did like a good person would. And then he died the next day in an airstrike that wasn't intended for him, but it still killed him next door. So there is a lot of tragedies that we're dealing with as Palestinians here. My family has no choice to go up south, one, for a number of reasons, one, safety concerns. They don't know anybody. They might be in the wrong place. The shelters are already packed. We're talking about UNRWA shelters that are serving th- three times over their capacity, meaning if you're supposed to shelter 1,000, and now you're sheltering five thousand, three thousand. So there is a lot of tragedies. And remember, there is no fuel. How is my, how is my family going to go? And safety. You know, if you tra- transfer so many people like that. It's going to be scary. It's very scared. You know, bombs are really close, two doors down, and I worry for their safety. And as you can see, I'm trying to tell everybody where my family is, especially for my mom, who's, you know, 71 years old, has not done any harm for anybody. She's a homemaker, a loving mother and a grandmother now. She's surrounded by the kids who love her and, you know, so many of them around her and, you know, they're not feeling safe. And that the cat we've adopted, actually, the cat's name is Lucky, Somehow that feels misfire right now. It's unfortunate that even cats are not, uh, you know, are are really worried about what's going on around them, not to mention the humans.
0: Let me let me play for just a moment um, for you, uh, Daniel Levy. This is Queen Rani of Jordan. She is uh, of Palestinian background, and she spoke uh, with Christiane Amanpour. Are we being told that it is wrong to kill a, a family, an entire family at gunpoint? But it's okay to shell them to death? I mean, there is a glaring double standard here. And it is just shocking to the Arab world. This is the first time in modern history that there is such human suffering and the world is not even calling for a ceasefire. So the silence is deafening. Daniel, what are the implications if uh, Israel goes forward with this ground invasion? One can only imagine it gets worse um, from the humanitarian point of view and also from the public relations point of view.
2: One can imagine it gets worse, but it's... So I worry that for days now we've been saying... You know, will the ground invasion be today? Will it be tomorrow? But we just heard from Hani. We just saw the pictures from Shifa Hospital. Over 6,000 dead. We think 2,700 of those are children. We have to stop this now. The ground invasion is almost a distraction at this stage. Yes, escalatory. But I don't understand what one calls a US administration policy, which on one side is providing and paying for the weapons giving the political support to cause this destruction. And then there's this tiny trickle, a mere fraction of money that America now says may go to help rebuild from the devastation, from the collective punishment, from these violations of international law. I mean, what do you call that? Is that confusion? Is it political cowardice? Is it deep moral corrosion? Or is it Washington politics as usual when it comes to the different value? Palestinian and Israeli lives are held to, because that's what got us here in the first place. And of course, it won't bring security for Palestinians, but it also won't bring security for Israelis, and it certainly won't bring credit or credibility for America internationally.
0: And a very last word to you, Daniel, because there are also hostages who are now living in Gaza, for, for all intents and purposes, trapped there as well. They're from multiple different countries. There's a story in the BBC about one family from Tanzania is looking for their family. There are people from Thailand. They're from all over the world. What are the implications if those some of those people start to also um, die in airstrikes? Well— <laughs> here
2: may be a tiny, a tiny glimmer of hope, Joy, which is that the more one can put front and center something that that the US president and others have, have really talked about, which is those being held in Gaza, this might, might give room for a pause, for a for building a path towards de-escalation and a ceasefire, the negotiations are ongoing. We saw two Americans freed. We saw two elderly Israelis freed. There's talk of a right. much larger release of civilians. Qatar is working hard on this. Right. If there's a chance, you can shift the public conversation, get a ceasefire, get those people out and let Palestinians right. in Gaza live.
0: Yeah. Um, Daniel Levy and Hani Almadoun, um, we, we will be thinking of your family and praying your, for your family, sir. Thank you both for being here. We'll be right back. Before we go, check out the Readout blog, where Jahan Jones explains how Trump's behavior this week shows that he's running a 1924 campaign to win the White House in 2024. With threats aimed at black poll workers and calls for an army of poll watchers, Trump's campaign is truly taking us all back in time. And that is the Readout.